it was the book that everybody was talking about. It was 1997, and Christian author and pastor Joshua Harris had just published a blockbuster Christian book titled, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And in it, he laid out his vision for Christian courtship and thereby traumatizing hundreds of thousands of teenage and young adult Americans at the peak moment of purity culture in 1990s American evangelicalism. From 2004 to 2015, Harris then pastored a prominent conservative church in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C., and then four years later, in 2019, he left his wife and announced that he was no longer a Christian and began marketing, selling online a course on how to deconstruct your Christian faith. I've known too many cases like this. People who once identified as Christian, they may even have been leaders, abandoning the faith. And typically by the time they walk away, they can look back and realize it was a long time coming, that they had been walking away from God, away from Christianity for years. As we begin a new series this morning on the epistle to the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, this letter written to uh, Jewish Christians who were persecuted by both their fellow Jews for abandoning uh, what was perceived as abandoning Judaism to follow Jesus, and they were, of course, despised by Gentiles because Gentiles were racist and hated Jewish people. Uh, as we begin to look at this letter to the Hebrews, we're looking at a book that was written to believers who were caught in a vice grip between conservative Jewish religion and secular pagan Gentile culture. Uh, 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 a context which said, if you just function like Gentile, unbelievers, pagans, you'll be fine. Or if you just return to Judaism and abandon this whole Jesus thing, then you'll be fine. But as it is, you're in an unsustainable position where the pressure to return to Judaism would have been crippling. Family members would have been expelled from their family. People would have lost their trade, their business. They might have been homeless. They would have lost everything to follow Jesus. And, and some of these folks weren't even sure what they believed or where they were with this whole thing. And the pressure was inhuman. And so this author writes to them to cast them a vision, lay before them a vision of a truly ancient faith going back to creation itself in which we see Jesus who is better than the prophets, who is better than religion, who is better than the temple who is better than the angels. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, come for our salvation. This is Hebrews. We're going to read the first four verses of chapter 1 and then the first four verses of chapter 2 this morning. This is God's Word. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as his name, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not 
drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was a first announced by the Lord, that is Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, by wonders, by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What do we see here? We see the danger of drifting. That's what these early Christian followers of Jesus were facing. He says we must pay more careful attention so that we do not drift away. See, the danger wasn't that they were going to suddenly do a 180 degrees and wake up atheist one day. It wasn't that they were going to suddenly go from, you know, uh, 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 being a deacon in the church and serving the Lord uh, to return to Judaism and renounce it all in, in, in an hour. You know, the danger is that they would gradually drift away. Um, you know, first, their commitment to worship Jesus publicly might become less of a priority, particularly given the, the pressures and the persecution they were under from every side. Uh, being numbered among his people might be a lesser priority. Accommodating their faith to their Jewish families and friends would, would perhaps be a more important thing, less focused on Jesus so as not to offend, uh, you know, in order to get an easier life. Uh, this was still in that early period where there was persecution all around, and we, we can't point the finger at, at Jews in the first century for persecuting Jewish followers of Jesus, because as soon as Christians became the majority, they did the same thing back, far worse for far longer. But, but this was the main threat of slowly drifting away from Jesus. Drifting is a danger that, that we all face, and we have to be honest about that. You know, at first, gathering with God's people becomes less of a priority. Other things become more important to us. Meditating on God's Word tends to get pushed off to the end of the day and the next day and then the next week, and maybe someday I'll start that and figure that out. Uh, you know, identifying publicly as a follower of Jesus, uh, which can be costly in terms of making people feel awkward and think you're weird. You know, it becomes less important to us. Sharing your faith becomes a lower priority. Don't think this can't happen to you. Jesus speaks about how the worries and concerns of this life can overtake the seed and strangle it so that it bears no fruit. Be careful lest you drift. We must, care, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. You know, last month I talked about how when I was a kid, my, uh, my, my parents had a, a 1973 or 74 Chevy Vega, um, which was not the greatest car ever made in human history, but, um, but it was gray, and it was usually parked right in front of our house, and we were on a, a suburban hillside that went down and then curved uh, Gilbert Road, Woodbridge, Virginia. And I remember one day all the kids were out in the street playing ball, and I was the youngest of the bunch, and, and I remember we were watching as that Vega started very slowly to move backward down the hill. And, and then it started going a little more quickly, a little more quickly. And what had happened is somebody had failed to set the emergency brake 
uh, which you had to do or else, um, well, it would do what it was doing. And I just remember seeing all those other boys bigger than me going up and trying to hold the back of that car. There were like five or six of them, and it was pushing them back. And I just knew they were going to be big, fleshy speed bumps on that thing's way <laughs> down to the tree at the bottom of the hill. And so I just sat and watched. I, there was no point in six of us dying when just five could. And, and then eventually my mom rushed out, and she came, and she got in the car, and she put the emergency brake on, and it stopped. But, but that's what it means to drift. When you start to drift, you don't know you're drifting. It's imperceptible. You can't even see it. You know, you're just ever so slowly, but without that break, you're going to end up at the bottom of the hill wrapped around a tree, and your faith, your faith is going to be totaled. Um, Paul warns us that, that there are forces out there, as we see warned about here, that tempt us to become spiritually lazy. He says, you know, do not let... Do not be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. If you won't hear it from from the author to Hebrews and you won't hear it from Paul, you can hear it from Jesus himself. In Matthew 24, he says, false messiahs and false prophets will appear to deceive, if possible, even the elect. You say, no, Greg, I'm Presbyterian. The elect can't be deceived. Well, Jesus leaves that open as a question. They'll deceive, if possible, even the elect. We must pay more careful attention so that we do not drift away. And if we drift away from Jesus, the author asks, how are we going to escape? This salvation, he writes, which was first announced by Jesus, was confirmed to us. God testified to it through signs, wonders, and miracles. Jesus is this man of salvation. There's not a second option. There's not like plan B to salvation. To walk away from Jesus is to walk away from everything. And so we read here in Hebrews that the message, if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? See, everybody sitting in a pew on Sunday morning doesn't necessarily have a faith that's united them in a living, vital union to Jesus. It's possible, and the implied answer here is you won't escape. As a kid, I remember watching the debacle around Mount St. Helens as again and again on the nightly news, you would see you know, reporters on this mountain asking locals who were living on the mountain if they were going to leave because there was a mandatory evacuation, but there were some people who just refused to leave. And for two months, the U.S. Geological Survey had been warning that catastrophe was coming. The local geography was changing. The whole north side of the mountain had swelled up with a massive magma chamber under it, and that pressure can't be sustained. Eventually, it's going to give, and it's going to blow up. And I remember one man, he had a, a little house with a garage, a carport on the side, and he was sitting there. He was an older guy, like a, a Korean War vet, and he was just like, I've been on this mountain my entire life. This mountain's been here forever. It's going to be here forever. I'm not leaving. This is my home. Two days later, on March 27, 1980, the mountain blew up. Not just a core of it. The whole mountain blew up. It was a moonscape. Not an animal survived, not a bird, not an insect, not a plant, not a weed, not a clover. Everything was gone. Every tree was incinerated close by, further out. They were flattened. Everything had burned. He, this man and everything he knew was turned to dust in an instant. And you wonder, why did he not get out when there was safety? Why didn't he escape when he could? How shall we escape? If we ignore such a great salvation as we have in Jesus, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, so that we do not 
drift away. It's the danger of drifting. Realize who we'd be drifting from if you let yourself drift. The text reminds us who Jesus is. This is the Jesus of creation. You know, we read here that through God the Son in these last days, God spoken to us through His Son, through whom He made the universe. Do you hear that? Jesus, pre-incarnate, God the Son, the eternal Logos is God's agent in creation. You know, for by Him, we read here, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, things like bumblebees, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He's not only the source of creation, He's its telos, He's its end, He's its object. He's before all things we read, and in Him all things hold together. When you walk through the Missouri Botanical Garden or stop to gaze at the plantings in Forest Park or a squirrel runs by up a tree, realize you're looking at something that was created through God the Son. You're gazing upon this breathtaking vista, this, this incredible panorama of beauty made by God Himself through Jesus and for Jesus. When you look at photos from the Mars rover or you see primitive images of a distant black hole, you're looking at something that was created through Jesus and for Him. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created by and for Him. Imagine that. Black holes for Jesus. The tiniest insect. For Jesus, by Jesus, to the most distant star. All of it through Jesus, the Word, God the Son. John 1, you know, we, we see the beginning, the opening of, of John's gospel with those, those words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. When you look at the beauty of creation, you are seeing the fingerprints of Jesus beauty of God the Son, that is an ancient faith, a faith that goes back before human history, before the history of the cosmos, a faith that is grounded in the Son's relationship with the Father from before the, before the Big Bang, before the beginning. We see Jesus of creation here, and that makes Jesus our God. Worship together with the Father, and the Spirit is one God in three persons. The Son, we read, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. You know the Bible says that? For a Jewish person in the first century, strict monotheism, to say that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, they only had one God. They're talking about Jesus. It's what Paul wrote about in Colossians 1, where Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Colossians 2, in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. He is the fullness of God. He is the glory of God. He is the radiance of God. He is the representation of God because the Word was with God and the Word was God. When you drift, realize what you're drifting away from. You're drifting away from Jesus, the Jesus of creation who is our God. This is the same Jesus that, that, that sustains the cosmos. We read here in Hebrews that the Son is sustaining all things by His powerful Word. 
Can you picture that? It's what Paul says in Colossians 1 where he says, in him all things hold together. You know, the thought, you know, we, we tend to think because Americans are basically, you know, uh, 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 deists. We think that God wound the world up like a clock and set it on a shelf and walked away and just everything goes by itself automatically. And yet that's not the biblical picture. Um, Yes, there are laws of physics, but those are secondary causes, not primary cause. Rather, the picture is of God speaking the world into existence, and, and, and he's still speaking because he's not just creating it, he's sustaining it in his providence, by his power, sustaining all things moment by moment. You know, we read here that Jesus, God the Son, is sustaining all things by his powerful word. It's that word that keeps speaking. We, we think of it as a staccato kind of thing. I, I played the violin for four years in, in middle school, in elementary school, and was horrible at it. I was second chair, second violin. Um, but, um, but, you know, I remember the difference between staccato and legato. Staccato is like just a monk. You know, just single thing, stops. And we think of God creating the world. It's like, and there it is. He walks away, goes and has a smoke or something. I don't know. That's not the biblical picture. When God rested after seven days, he wasn't completely resting. He was resting from creating, but he was maintaining all of that moment by moment. It's rather like a legato. Staccato was like a ba. Legato was a ba. It's what Jonathan Edwards referred to as God's continual act of creation, not only creating but sustaining moment by moment, and we learn here that it is Jesus, it is God the Son, who sustains the cosmos moment by moment. Were he to blank out for but a moment, it would all cease to be. Were God to nap, everything would go away. Because this world, this cosmos, this universe, the bees, everything is an outgrowth of the infinite love and beauty that God has to share, overflowing it out from himself into the creation which he made and sustains. Here we see the will of Jesus, God the Son, creator and sustainer of all things. If you're drifting, friends, you are drifting from one who holds the black holes in the palm of his hand, the one who is good, the one who made and sustains all things, because here we see Jesus, the final word. All sorts of people want to say that there's a new word, something in addition to Jesus. You got Jesus, he's okay, but there's something better than Jesus. Let me tell you, there's Jesus 2.0. There's like the next volume, you know, it, it's everywhere. You know, it's, Jesus is great, but there's something more. What you really need is, is, is the, the, the surahs that God spoke through an angel in a cave to Muhammad is packaged in the Quran. What you really need are, are the, the transcription of the golden plates that the angel Moroni gave to Joseph Smith in New York in the 1820s and 30s. No, what you really need is science and health with key to the scriptures. What you really need is something from the Watchtower Society. Everybody has an upgrade on Jesus. And yet, St. Paul says in Galatians 1, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. In Greek, it's anathema esto. Let him be anathema. Let him be gone. Let him be damned. There's no end people claiming to have discovered the 2.0 version of Jesus, the better than just Jesus, we got the extras version. And yet, if you follow them, you follow them to your own peril because Jesus here is presented as the final word, the final complete and total revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. 
we read that it's the implication of what we read here when we read that in the past God spoke to our forefathers, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. There's a finality there. While God spoke through the prophets in all these various ways, now he has spoken finally and conclusively in Jesus. The the meaning uh, is, is that Jesus is the final word. And anyone claiming to improve on him is a fraud, a deceiver, a religious charlatan. It doesn't matter what they're selling. If it's not Jesus, then it's not the final word. It's not the final revelation of God because that's Jesus. And this Jesus came to give us a final purification. After he had provided purification for sins, we read, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was purifying us of the guilt and power of sin. He was washing us and making us clean. He was bearing our guilt for our sake so that we might know him in the coming age, see his face as we rise from death. It's the only antidote for sin is what Jesus offered. No one else did that. No one else was God incarnate. No one else took on human flesh and absorbed into himself all the guilt of all humanity throughout all eternity from the Garden of Eden to the very last day. No one else bore that for us. You know, one, you know, it's, it's difficult for, for us to accept that there can only be one way to, to be rescued from sin and judgment. But one author discusses how the cross of Christ is, is the only solution. It's the one we need. Uh, he writes this. He says, most ailments need particular antidotes. Increasing the air pressure in your tires will not fix a troubled carburetor. Aspirin will not dissolve a tumor. Cutting up credit cards will not wipe away the debt that is already owed. If your water pipes are leaking, you call a plumber, not an oncologist. But a plumber will not cure cancer. Any adequate solution must solve the problem that needs to be solved, and the singular problems need singular solutions. Some antidotes are one-of-a-kind cures for one-of-a-kind ailments. Sometimes only one medicine will do the job. As, as much as we might like it to be otherwise, humanity faces a singular problem. People are broken. The world is broken because our friendship with God has been broken, ruined by humanity's rebellion against him. Humans, you and I, he writes, are guilty. We're enslaved. We are lost and we are dead. All of us everyone, everywhere. The guilt must be punished. The debt must be paid. The slave must be purchased. Promising better conduct in the future will not mend the crimes of the past. No, a rescuer must ransom the slaves. A kindred brother must pay the family debt. A substitute must shoulder the guilt. There is no other way of escape. Jesus provided purification for sins and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. To be purified is to be made clean before God, no longer having anything to be ashamed of because he has paid for it all and he has purified us. You may have never heard of the town, the great metropolis of Spruce Pine, North Carolina, but this remote area is tremendously important to the rest of the world because it's the mineral that's found there is snowy white grain, soft as powdered sugar. It, it, powdered sugar. It's, it's quartz, but not just any quartz, because spruce pine, North Carolina, is the source of the world's purest natural quartz. It's a, a species of pristine sand that's found everywhere on earth. It's one of the most common minerals upon the earth. 
uh, but it, it's, it's what's used to manufacture the silicon that goes into computer chips. And there's an excellent chance that the chip in your cell phone was made using sand from this obscure Appalachian backwater of Spruce Pine, North Carolina. Uh, making today's computer chips is a very complicated process which requires essentially completely pure silicon. The slightest impurity will throw off the entire system and make it all out of whack and nothing works then. You know, finding silicon is easy. It's, it's everywhere. You, you go to the sand on the, the seashore, it's, it's silicon. But, but it only occurs with naturally purity in this one location and separating out that silicon even then takes considerable doing. The sand from Spruce Pine, North Carolina, as pure as it is, it still has to go through a powerful electric furnace that results in 99% pure silicon, but that's not good enough for high-tech. Additional extreme processing is required because computer chips need silicon to be 99.9999999999% pure. That's 11 nines after the 99 dot. We're talking about, you know, one lonely atom that is not silicon among billions and billions of silicon companions, says geologist Michael Welland. It's literally one in ten trillion impurity. But before a holy and righteous God, being 99.9999999999% pure will not get you into God's presence. Because he's holy, he requires 100% purity. And that's not something you or I can provide because I break God's greatest commandment by loving God with less than 100% of my mind, less than 16 sixteenths of my soul every day, all day, 24-7. I'm constantly committing the greatest sin. And for that I need purification. And 99.9999999999% isn't good enough. It's still cosmic treason against a holy and righteous God. And how shall we escape if we neglect the great salvation we have in Jesus who has provided and who alone has provided 100% purification for 100% of our sin, fully, finally, forever, with no footnotes? That's salvation. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's how much he loved us. He had provided purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is the ancient faith dating before creation that from the very beginning God had planned to send his son into the world. God the son to provide purification for our sins. And if he alone did that, then what more need be said? Because Jesus is the final word. Death is not the final word. Sin is not the final word. Judgment is not the final word. Jesus is the final word who brings 100% purification, free of charge to any who will receive it, any who will come after me, Jesus said. I will take your burden from you. He says, my burden is light. One author writes about how as a young man, Francis Schaeffer had been associated with the kind of fiery fundamentalism of Carl McIntyre. He was a part of McIntyre's Bible Presbyterian Church and the American Council of Christian Churches. He was one of the most significant Christian figures of the last half of the 20th century. Uh, and, and Schaeffer pastored right here in St. Louis, right at Union Boulevard and Enright, just north of, of, of Del Mar. Uh, it was actually a splant of memorial, First Bible Presbyterian Church. I call it a splant because it was a church split that was managed into a church plant. Um, but uh, 
Schaefer was a part of this, this very fundamentalist denomination, and, and the main burden of these groups, one author writes, uh, uh, was to denounce in a strident voice both liberal Protestant theology and any believers who were unwilling to separate from those mainline Protestant churches, which at that point they were talking about us, because um, we took another we took the roundabout way another 20 years later. But Schaefer and his, his wife Edith were, were faithful workers within this movement. And in 1947 to 48, they moved to Europe to do evangelism and to train Christian leaders and to pursue some writing projects. And after three years of ministry in Switzerland, Schaefer came to a breaking point. He didn't know if any of this was true. He had a massive crisis of faith. He says, I faced a spiritual crisis in my own life and I told Edith, but for the sake of honesty, I had to go all the way back to my agnosticism and think through the whole matter from scratch. I rethought my reasons for even being a Christian. It happened from 1951 to 52, and it was a terribly difficult time for Edith. She later recounts how, how, how scared she was at her husband's soul-searching, his struggling, his rethinking, his questioning. You know, using the metaphors of Pilgrim's Progress, she knew, she knew that Fran was either in the, the slough of despond or the doubting castle, and she wondered whether he would ever emerge with his faith intact. Her account of those months indicates she spent a lot more time talking to God in prayer than she did talking with her own husband. What had triggered the crisis? While he was in Europe, Schaefer had come to realize that his American fundamentalist movement spent far more time denouncing harshly other Christians with views different from them than it did bringing the gospel of salvation to humanity. And the Schaefers began to experience this lack of love from their own mentors. Schaefer came to see two huge problems. He writes, first, among many of those who held, orthodox, who held the orthodox position, one saw little reality in the things that the Bible so clearly said should be the result of Christianity. Things like love, gentleness, kindness, humility. He wasn't seeing it. And second, it gradually grew on me that my own reality was less than it had been in the early days after I had become a Christian. In the lives of his colleagues within American fundamentalism, he did not see love. He did not see joy or faithfulness or gentleness or compassion or kindness or any of it. And he didn't see enough love in himself. In fact, he thought as a young Christian he loved God far more than he does now. And that left him open to two main possibilities. Either first, Christianity is false. It's not true. It's wishful thinking, but it's not true. Or... Some of the things that we have bound up with Christianity are not truly Christianity. It was a years-long process for Francis Schaeffer of discerning the truth. He deconstructed his Christianity all the way down to the foundation, and then he ripped up the foundation and took another look at it. It was a lengthy process, but Schaefer recounts how after this lengthy period of deconstructing his faith, he emerged stronger with a faith in Jesus that was filled with joy, looking honestly at the case for the truth of the claims of Jesus and being open to the possibility that they might be false. He emerged saying that there are totally sufficient reasons to know that the infinite personal God does exist and that Christianity is true, what he called true truth actually objectively reality. But if it was true, then he had to face the other question. Why was it not having the proper effect 
on his life and on the lives of so many other Christians, including most of the leaders of American fundamentalism with which he had interacted in his adult life and ministry. He realized that he and his colleagues had, had mixed together true biblical Christianity with all sorts of legalistic emphases and additions that eclipse the power of the gospel in people's lives. And this lack of focus on grace, lack of focus on the finished work of Christ, a lack of focus on Jesus and what he has done to accomplish for us our salvation fully and finally and forever, it stunted the fruit of the Spirit to, to, to not focus on grace. It stunted fruit like love and joy and peace. His fundamentalism hadn't been filled with peace. It was filled with, you know, anger and judgmentalism and condemnation and shunning of people. It didn't have the fruit of the Spirit like love. It was like a banging gong. His break with fundamentalism opened the door for a vibrant and beautiful orthodoxy. And indeed, he became the, the evangelist to the intellectual classes of planet Earth, Europe and America, for an entire generation. Uh, it, it was a beautiful orthodoxy that was focused on Jesus and on his grace and love for sinners like us. Schaefer's home at Labrie, Switzerland, became a magnet for skeptics and seekers alike, as well as believers wrestling with questions of faith and reality. Schaefer says, I saw that the problem was that with all the teaching I had received after I was a Christian, I had not emphasized what the Bible says about the meaning of the finished work of Jesus Christ for our present lives. And gradually, as I came to see Jesus, as I came to see his grace, as I came to see his finished work for us and the power that can have in my life, the sun came out and the song came. He says, in that time of joy and song, I found poetry beginning to flow again out of my heart. Poetry of certainty and affirmation of life, thanksgiving to God, praise to Jesus. And admittedly, he writes, as poetry, it was very poor, but it expressed a song that was in my heart that was wonderful to me. Friends, this is my prayer for you. As you struggle and try to figure out, is this really true? Do I really believe this? As, as friends and family members, you see them struggling with whether they really believe Christianity is true. Is it actual reality? I want you to encourage them to look at Jesus. Because Christians can say all sorts of things. Christians can do all sorts of things. But look at Jesus. He is filled with love. He is the eternal God. He is alive and at large on planet Earth right now. And he can change your life radically and give you a freedom you did not know you can have because he is alive. Let's pray.